You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Clear the aisles, the projectionist has smicha. I should say, uh, clear the bleachers, the projectionist has smicha. Today's actually the all-star game. I, I know Yitzchak doesn't mean much to you. When I was growing up, we all knew when the all-star game was. I guess it's, it says a lot about the United States that the all-star game isn't the big event that it used to be uh when the best of the national league and the best of the american league uh and they've been uh, people are widely widely anticipating this game which is sort of like a mini world series about who has the better league and the great players would play and uh people like uh, as we know um pete rose <laughs> played super hard in the uh in the all-star game, I think, I forgot who, who was the catcher that he crashed into, but he almost put him in the hospital uh, the way he was uh, trying to slide for home. Uh, the all-star game was something great. It really was of a of a period where baseball was king. And so tonight, we're, we're actually going to talk all about baseball, baseball television programs, baseball movies. Um, and I think we have to start tonight with something that... Uh, uh, Yitzchak is and I, and and we're going to be we're going to be joined by Tom Shabila very soon. Is very very familiar with. We're going to start today with the ultimate uh, baseball shtickerai, the baseball vaudeville um, act that was perfected. I don't know if it was uh, Yitzchak was it written by Abbott Costello? Did they write it, or did they just uh, did they incorporate it from somebody else? They um, they perf- they more than perfected it. They. It, it, there's no record of who actually wrote this uh, and it would seem that they really they took something that was that existed and and made it much bigger than it was and it became almost their signature uh their signature piece and, and as i said to you last night when we were talking about it that it's probably even bigger than Abbott and costello themselves uh who's on first and it really could only have spawned from a world where baseball was on the tip of everyone's tongue where the idea of the the catcher and the first baseman, the second baseman, the third baseman, the various outfielders, and of course the uh, uh, the shortstop, which is the last thing that's mentioned in the skit, everybody knew about who those things were. Everybody knew about those things. It was all part of uh, the lifestyle of of Americans and what they desired. So we're going to start tonight uh, yeah, in yeah, honor. Yeah, yeah. How 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 much influence it had? What I mentioned last night. My daughter came home from school. She goes to a very, very Hasidic school, and she came home from her English class, uh, you know, the Hasidic girl who teaches her, or a woman teaches her, and uh, and that's, and it was, the reading assignment was this skit, was who's on first. It was, to, was to know pronouns, or to know uh, yeah. who, in other words, to figure out what was what, and what was who, and uh, what was why, and the way you would get it through baseball, of course. Um, so, here we go. Uh, played for you, uh, on <laughs> on this podcast known as the projection is as Michael here comes the classic who's on first we're organizing a baseball team here at the retired actors home and I am the manager now you're going to be the manager of the retired actors baseball team? Yes. I would like to join the retired actors baseball team. Oh, you would? And I would like to know some of the guys' names on the team, so if I want to play with them, I know them, and I meet them on the street or in the home here, I can say hello to them. 
Oh, sure. But you know they give baseball players nowadays very peculiar names. Oh, a lot of funny names. You know, like uh, Sticky Fields. Sticky Fields. Uh, Goofy Dan. Booby Barber. Booby Barber. I know all of them. Well, let's see. Now, we have on our team, we have who's on first, what's on second, I don't know who's on third. That's what I want to find then, out, the guy's name. And then, uh -huh. That's what I want to find out, the guy's name. I'm telling you, who's on first, what's on second, I don't know who's on third. Now, Abby, you now, want to be the manager of the baseball team? Yes. You know the guy's names? Well, I should. Well, now, you tell me the guy's names on the baseball I team. I say, who's on first, what's on second, I don't know who's on third. You ain't saying nothing to me yet. Go ahead and tell me. <laughs> I'm telling him. You said nothing yet. Go ahead and tell me. Who's on first? What's on second? I don't know. Is on third. You know the guy's I'll... names on the baseball team. Yes. Well, go ahead. Who's on first? Yes. I mean the guy's name. Who? The guy playing first. Who? The guy playing first base. Who? The guy on first base. Who is on first? Why are you asking me? For? I don't know. Now, wait a minute. I'm, not... I'm asking you who's on first. That's his name. Well, go ahead and tell me. Who? The guy on first. That's it. <laughs> That's his name. Well, you ain't said nothing. I ain't asked you nothing. You did. You know the guy's name on first base. Sure. Well, tell me the guy's name on first base. Who? <laughs> the guy playing first base. Who is on first, Lou? What are you asking me no, for? Don't get excited. I'm saying who. I'm asking you a simple question. Who's on first? Yes. Well, go ahead and tell me. That's it. That's who? <laughs> yeah. I'm asking you, what's the guy's name on first oh, base? Oh, no. What's on second? I'm not asking you who's on second. Who's on first? One base at a time. <laughs> don't mix up my. I'm story. not mixing up anybody. Now, what's the guy's name on first base? Now, what is on second? I'm not asking you who's on second. Who is on first? I don't know. He's on third. We're not talking. <laughs> Whoa, 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 whoa. How did, I, how did I get on third base? You mentioned his name. I mentioned his name? Yes. I don't know anybody's name on the team. I, uh, how could I mention a guy's name? You did. You just mentioned it. All right. What's the guy's name on third base? No, what's on second? Who's on second? Who's on first? I don't know. He's on first. You ready? I didn't even mention a guy's name on third base. Yes, you did. All right, then. Who's playing third base? No, who's on first? I'm not asking you what's on first. What's on second? Who's on second? Who's on first? I don't know. He's third base. Third base. Third base. Third base. I don't know anybody on a baseball team. You do. You mention their names. I do? Sure. You got an outfield? Well, naturally. Tell the fielder's name. Why? <laughs> I, I, I just thought I'd ask you. I just thought I'd ask you. Well, I just thought I'd tell you. Well, go ahead. Tell me. Tell you what? Tell the fielder's name. Why? Because I want to know. Because. Oh, he's center field. You know these players as well. Who's as in I... center field? No, who's on first? What's on first? What's on second? I don't know. Third base. <laughs> on the team. Look, Louis, uh, you don't seem to understand. See, I have a first baseman. You, I know you got a first. Gets his, I ask you, what's, what's the first? I ask you, what's the first baseman's name? No, what's the second baseman's name? I, I'm going to start to ask you, sir. I ask you, what's the first baseman's name? What's the second baseman's name? I don't even get past the first. All right, who's on second? Who's on first? What base do you want to talk about? You can talk about anyone you want to talk about. All right, now, who's on first? Right. Okay. Now, 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 now. All right, you got a first baseman. Yes. When you pay off the first baseman every month, who gets the money? Every dollar of it. <laughs> every dollar of it. Who gets it? He does. Sometimes his wife comes down and collects it. Whose wife? Yes. <laughs> Why not, Lou? He's earned it. Who did? Yes. <laughs> Look, when you pay off the first baseman every month, you get a receipt from the guy? Sure. How does he sign his name? Who? The guy you give the money to. Who? The guy you give the money to. <laughs> Well, that's how he signs it. That's look. how who signs it? Yes. Who's right, come? That's it. Who? <laughs> look, you go to first baseman. Yes. And you say to him, here's your money, sign the receipt. How does he sign his name? Who? The guy you give the money to. That's how he signs it. That's how who signs it? Yes. Sure. <laughs> you gotta get a receipt from the guy, don't you? Get one, Lou. How does the guy on first base 
please sign his name. Who? The guy at work. That's how he signs. I'm asking. When you give the guy the money, what's the guy's name that you give the money to? Now, wait a minute. Now, what signs his own? Who signs his own? No, who signs his? <laughs> I mean, what's the guy's name on first you give what the... What is on second? I'm not asking you who's on second. Who's on first? I don't know. Third base. <laughs> Center field. I don't know if you got a pitcher on that team. Well, this will be a fine team without a pitcher. It's a fine team without a pitcher. The pitcher's name. Tomorrow. Uh, you know well, what? I can't, I, I can't change that name. You don't want to tell me today? I'm telling you. Go ahead. Tell me the pitcher's name. Tomorrow. <laughs> Why not tell me today? I am going to tell you. Tomorrow. Then tell me the pitcher's name. Tomorrow. All right. What time tomorrow? Tell me the pitcher's name. What time? What? What time tomorrow? You're going to tell me who's pitching? Who is not pitching? I'll break you right here. Who's on first? What's on second? I don't know. Third base. Third base. Third base. You got a catcher? Certainly you've got a catcher on a baseball team. Catcher's name. Today. Today. Tomorrow's pitching. Today's catcher. Now you've got it. Now I got it. All I got, we got a couple of days on the team. That's I all. I can't help that, Lou. I don't You know, I'm a, I'm a pretty good catcher myself. That's so they tell me. Yeah, now I get behind the plate and I'm going to do some fancy catching and tomorrow's pitching on my team, right? Yeah. Now tomorrow he winds up the ball and I'm behind the plate and the heavy hitter gets up. Now, the heavy hitter gets up, and, he, and he's ready to hit the ball, and tomorrow's going to throw the ball. I'm the catcher. Now, when the tomorrow throws the ball, the guy bunched the ball. Now, when he bunched the ball, me being a good catcher, I'm going to throw the guy out of first base, so I pick up the ball and throw it to who? Now, that's the first thing you've said right. I don't even know what I'm talking about. Well, that's all you have to do. Is to throw the ball at first base. Yes. Now, who's got it? Naturally. Sure. <laughs> Look, the guy is running at first base, yeah. Ivan. I want to throw the guy out. So? So I throw the ball to who? Naturally. Throw it to who? Naturally. Who's got it? Huh. So I pick up the ball and I throw it to natural. No, no, no. <laughs> you throw the ball to first base, then who gets it? Naturally. That's it. Now you're <laughs> same thing. Right. I pick up the ball, so I throw it to natural. You don't. I throw it to who? Natural. That's what I'm saying. I said I throw the ball to who? Naturally. You ask me. You throw the ball to who? Naturally. Same as you. Say it that I throw the ball to natural. You don't. You throw it to who? Now who's got it? Naturally. That's what I said. Whoever it is better get it. That's He'll all get I can it. Don't worry about who. Who get it? Yes. He better get it. All right. Now I throw the ball to who? whoever it is drops the ball so the guy runs a second. Who picks up the ball and throws the what? What throws the I don't know. I don't know. Throws it back to tomorrow. Triple play. Could be. Another guy gets up and it's a long fly ball to be caused. Why? I don't know. He's on third and I don't give a darn. I said I don't give a darn. Oh, that's our shortstop. I mean, <laughs> to Yitzchak was, of course, um, a television clip. Um, and I, I think that, it, I think it sort of suffers in translation. I, I think it's almost like um, Lou Costello is rushing it, don't you think, in what we just heard, that version? It, it, it seemed like the, the two of them were just just uh, phoning it in because they're, they're just so used to saying this. And, and you know, they can... They can express themselves the way that they're used to, you know. For them, yeah. it's, it's like for us saying Ashray, you know. So, <laughs> right, know. right. So, I, you know, they call this what we just listened to, the definitive version. I, I, to me, it went on a little bit too long. And also, I think the main joke, of course, is the befuddlement uh, that, uh, that Lou Costello shows and the straightness of Abbott. Uh, of Abbott never breaking character and being totally safe while he gets more and more frustrated. So I, I, I think because this was on television, I think they needed it more 
than on the radio. Now, we, now you told me that you were thinking perhaps of watching uh, this when it was actually performed in one of Abbott and Costello's films, right? Well, there were, there were two films that they performed it in. Uh, you mentioned radio. The first time that it, they performed it uh, for a national audience was on the Kate Smith show. I believe it was 1938. And then after that, uh, their first film, I believe, was One Night in the Tropics. And in One Night in the Tropics, they did a short version of of the of the skit. I didn't I didn't get that far in the movie. I was watching it last night. It is streaming for free on, on one of the streaming channels that I found on the Roku. And I'd never seen the movie, uh, but I knew um, that the real definitive version of the skit was in another movie that they made called the naughty 90s where they were on a uh they were riverboat gamblers uh something along those lines i i also, I also don't remember seeing that movie but i do know that that is the version that is running on a loop at, at, in cooperstown at the baseball hall of fame okay so we're, we're joined by tom chabillanel and thanks for okay. you, you didn't miss much what we did was we even other versions of the skit uh, you know, kind of with with different names, different themes, and and that never really caught on. But certainly, who's on words, first? In other, in other words, they tried to uh, adapt it to different sports, and it different, didn't work. Not even different sports. I think it was just you know just different things, um, and it it never quite caught on until Abner Costello did it with with who's on first. So yeah, yeah. So again, well, I th- I think you know that what from my little bit of research, I'm not I'm not the scholar than either of you are but it seemed that wheeler and woolsey did uh, something about a king and the name of the kingdom and it was it was something along those lines and that was, yeah. was where something along those lines would be found. look again yeah. you're right historians of humor will always find as, as far back as shakespeare and even much earlier than that uh, of, of words that have double meanings uh, i mean that's all part of the um, the humor of of misunderstanding something, right? Of even, words that even in, in Tanakh, in you know, in the, in the Bible, in the Hebrew, you have. Uh, I remember was it Iros, Iros, Iros that they were donkeys and cities and and uh, and and one of the one of the translators in English said burrows, burrows, and burrows, and they were <laughs> <laughs> so. Like, Again, and you're right. Forget Shakespeare. We're going back even. We're we're going back a lot further. Yes, yes. So wordplay, wordplay is always funny, and the idea that uh, the frustration that we talked about of Costello's frustration building and building with Abbott just keeping it straight is 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 also part of the great comic tension there. Um, it's it's interesting that in that t- in that clip that we were listening to and watching. Uh, Costello comes out with a baseball bat and uh, it's sort of uh, the fact that he even needed the prop I guess (laughs) I I guess as I was telling uh, Joe Yitzchak before you came on Tom that I think that you know Yitzchak got the sense that this early 50s version of it was almost being phoned in by the guys And, and, and you can see that they are speeding it along for a television audience I think on the radio you almost wanted it to build slowly and you wanted to sort of like, you know, uh, let it really get to full in uh, within a certain amount of time. Um, and especially something like that skit, which I think 
even in 1951 or 52, most of the studio studio audience probably had heard, had heard it already, right? Most of them had probably seen some version of it. Um, seen some version, heard some version of it, and you know, and even uh, slowly adapting to television, like you said, uh, you know, kind of those early television things, they were adopting stage plays. Mm-hmm. It was just kind of this progression of, well, we're going to show plays on television, and they weren't quite sure what television was going to be. You're, you're, that's right. And, and even though, I, if you remember the last time you joined us, we talked about people who bemoaned uh, the classic age of television was like left in the dust, the middle to late 50s, where television actually took on 90 minute uh, dramas and, and, and what was called teleplays. Um, yeah. And like Requiem for a Heavyweight and other things that uh, uh, were considered sort of like the, the, the greatest thing television ever did. Uh, but obviously in the beginning, whether it was Uncle Milty or just, you know, the Colgate Comedy Hour with uh, Lewis and Martin bringing their Borscht Belt stuff into, uh, you know, into television. You know, Abbott Costello on television, you know, it, it's sort of sad in a way. They definitely are past their prime at that point. But uh, <laughs> clearly, as we said, it's, it, it's, it was still very much in the 1950s, very much a baseball world. Um, oh, yeah. We all know that again. It was football really doesn't really sink its claws into the American consciousness, at least professional football, until the 1958 um, uh, NFL championship game between the Baltimore Colts and the New York Giants. I think that was the um, the sudden death uh, uh, playoff game uh, where I think Alan Amici scores. I think that is the the famous game that was finally televised coast to coast. But up until that point. You know, baseball ruled. Uh, and that's why I guess we're sort of celebrating or at least thinking about baseball, like in the shadow of the all-star game that uh, is being played somewhere. I don't even know where. <laughs> but but as we speak, it's being played. We talk about a number of baseball uh, classics. Um, yes. So, you know, Tom, since you're sort of the guest, why don't you uh, start first? You know, was uh, an episode of uh, Sergeant Bilko, uh, also known as the Phil Silvers Show or You'll Never Get Rich. And uh, it was uh, the season three, uh, third, third, se- third season, uh, third episode, so third episode of the third season uh, of, uh, again, Sergeant Bilko. Uh, and uh, it was called The Hillbilly Wiz, and it uh, was guest starred uh, Dick Van Dyke. What year Dick was Van- that, Tom? Dick Van Dyke uh, came, uh, came on as a, as, a, as a guest star, relative unknown at this point, uh, playing a... A uh, hillbilly uh, who uh, uh, is in the army, uh, much like if you've uh, if you've never seen Sergeant Bilko, Sergeant Bilko, they are uh, on an army barracks, and uh, uh, the probably the best description I've ever heard of Sergeant Bilko is uh, uh, funny uh, Jews and Italians in uh, from New York in the army. We talked about Sergeant Bilko on this show, and and how Phil Silvers' role was so. Uh, obviously Jewish, he played the typical Jewish trying to get the angles on you. And, and when we, Joe is, has extolled Bilko, and we even extolled uh, Top Cat, which of course was the cartoon version of Sergeant Bilko. Practically the same thing. So always looking for some angle uh, of, of betting, uh, trying to get some money, uh, raising money from the from uh, his barracks. Uh, and uh, so 
you know, he's always trying to sell tickets to things like that. And uh, he, he lost a lot of money on his, on his barracks team, on his baseball team. Uh, so in walks um, Dick Van Dyke, uh, who, uh, who plays the character uh, Hank uh, Lumpkin. Hank Lumpkin is his name. He's a hillbilly uh, from the South. And uh, the, they're on the, the shooting range. And uh, Hank Lumpkin says, well, why do you need bullets? And he said, well, what do you mean? And he said, well, I could, I could throw you know, that, that hard. Uh, and so he starts throwing rocks. And he says, wow, like, how do you learn to throw like that? And he said, well, I, you know, I, I, I used to kill squirrels that way. And he says, hey, have you ever thrown a baseball? And he goes, yeah, I, I, somebody brought a baseball once. I killed a mountain lion. So uh, Bill Coe starts to, you know, really, uh, really think about this. And he says, wow, I could get this guy signed to the Yankees. Now, I had no idea that you could trade your army contract in with the Yankees, but apparently you can. And uh, uh, so they, they start uh, learning a little bit more about his pitching prowess. At one point, he breaks his left hand. and uh, then he realizes, hey, this guy could throw with his right too. Uh, at one point, they take him out for batting practice, and he loses all the balls. And they said, well, you know, next time take him bunting. And he goes, he was bunting. So it was a whole thing. But uh, it, it, it then it, it, it it, it, playing on the stereotype, sort of the Jethro Bodine stereotype, yes. that the guy from the mountain guy from the is is somehow the most incredible physical specimen that you've ever seen. Now, I didn't see the episode, but we all know that about, I guess, 15 or 20 years later, maybe more, uh, Dick Van Dyke was given the ignoble uh, award of the worst accent ever uh, in, in playing um, uh, in, in his role in Mary Poppins. Yes. Right? Uh, he put this two. one is is up there. This one is up there. His southern accent is 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 uh, is is up there. His southern so, accent is pretty bad, in other words. Yeah, yeah. Southern accent is just bad as his uh, Cockney accent. Cockney accent, yeah. Um, and uh, so, and he isn't. He yeah. isn't exactly. He's not Max Bear either. It's in other words, no. right? He's 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 sort of like a wiry, thin guy. So I'm. A, I, I, I. It was sort of a weird casting choice, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. But a great actor. So, um, in in the episode, uh, he uh, Bill Co uh, works his angles as always. He calls uh, a Phil Rizzuto, uh, who he says he knows, and then uh, he gets a, a Yankee scout out to look at him, and he he works him over on the contract and gets what he wants. And uh, they even go to Yankee Stadium. Uh, so there's some really cool on-location shots in the episode. They go to to the uh, old Yankee Stadium that you get to see in the episode, uh, much like uh, years later in the Munsters. Uh, if you ever saw the uh, the baseball episode of the Munsters, where Herman tries out for the Dodgers, where they go to Dodger Stadium in L.A., mm-hmm. which is a, a really cool episode as well. Yeah. So uh, I can see Fred, I can see Fred Gwynn as a uh, as definitely um, a monster baseball player. No question about it. Uh, on, on Sergeant Bilko, uh, Fred Gwynn plays uh, a, a character by the name of Ed Hedigan, who's the stomach, uh, and he's a uh, competitive eater. He's the best eater in the army, but only when he's depressed. Uh, so, so they got to keep him down in the dumps so he wins the contest. Um, but anyway, so, uh, in the episode, the one hang-up is, though, 
that he does not want to play a, a good uh, Southern boy. As a, uh, uh, he does not want to play for a team called the Yankees. Uh, and he, uh, he remarks that he went to Yankee Stadium and did not see one Confederate flag. Right. So that would uh, already that that would already make it uh, unable to be aired in today's today's yeah. uh, era today's zeitgeist. Yeah. Even to say the word the Confederate flag is like <laughs> saying the N word uh, <laughs> exponentially. You yeah. can't say Confederacy. You can't say that. So so uh, so so uh, again. So Bilko works all his angles and gets uh, the New York Yankees uh, players to. Uh, he convinces them that they are all good Southern boys. And uh, so he gets Phil Rizzuto, Whitey Ford, and Yogi Berra, uh, and uh, Joe McDougal um, to uh, dress up as Kentucky Colonels uh, to convince him that uh, that he should sign with the Yankees. He gets them to finally do it, but uh, unfortunately, uh, uh, Dick Van Dyke's girlfriend, uh, who's a, a very buxom young lady, um, and turns out she's only sixteen. So, so there's another uh, Ellie May. It's basically the Ellie. It's basically the Ellie May. Uh, who, who is it from uh, from Al Cap? You know, Al Cap's um, uh, Lou Abner, right? Yeah. I, th- I think it's it's basically that same stereotype. Oh, and they've been engaged for two years as well. So, so, we, <laughs> so we have to, we've thrown that in as well. Um, so so she uh, uh, convinces them to – she doesn't want them to play baseball. So uh, it ruins Bill Coe's uh, uh, scheme there. So, uh, But, yeah, no, it's a really great baseball episode. Uh, and, again, you get to see some – uh, some Yankees from that era, you know, like I said, Phil Rizzuto, Whitey Ford, Yogi Berra. Um, so uh, um, you do get to see that. Uh, and Red Barber, who was the announcer at the time as well, you do get to see oh, him. That's that's pretty heavy duty, good production values for. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. So they uh, so they all, do. All, all those guys could be characters on Bilko if they weren't. Yeah. Oh yeah. Ah, and so they right. kept saying to to Whitey Ford, or not to Whitey Ford, excuse me, to uh, Yogi Berra. Um, who uh, whose acting was uh, was was awful, but they kept saying, "Oh, this guy looks like Doberman." And he goes, who's Doberman? So you get that. Um, and then uh, also on that episode, another uh, uh, one of my favorite character actors uh, on that was uh, Joey Ross, uh, who also was in uh, Car Fifty Four. Where are you? Um, it sounds like Joey Ross made a lot of uh, appearances on Bilko. Right, he was almost—he yeah. was almost like a regular because he, he was, was semi-regular. Yeah, later went on to Car Fifty Four. Where are you? We talked about uh, him on the last time, and of course, yeah. Uh, and uh, what's it? It's a, didn't it probably what it couldn't have was actually what later television was able to do was to actually have an actual game. They could they yeah. could bring him in as a tryout. They could, but but the drama of an actual game with this uh, lumpkin in it that doesn't happen, right? It's only yeah, know. no, no, you don't really see any of the game. But but the idea of of of, of finding the natural, of, like and I think that's a theme that you have uh, in in many films and television programs is finding, like Jones, you see it quite a bit. Um, yeah, finding that player, yeah, finding that player that somehow is the total package, uh, and 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 maybe it's some raw talent that they're able to uh, to discover. Uh, but you know, which which is interesting. Again, I think what's also you know, you, you get this in Damn Yankees. You get this in Damn Yankees as well, where um, you have one player can make the big difference, right? One player can somehow change the whole team. Um, and, and again, fourth movie, you get that really, you know. 
Right. Yet, I, I'm not sure if baseball is, and we're talking about baseball specifically tonight. Not sure if, yeah. if it would seem basketball has sort of the same motif. You, you put a Jordan on a team, you could probably change the whole dynamic. But the idea really shows up in a number of baseball films. Of, oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, of finding that one great star. Um, and it seems like, you know, America was definitely enamored with that idea of somebody coming out of nowhere and being able to to you know put that team to the to the top, um, and I, I wanted to talk tonight about a film that I think many of our listeners are probably familiar with uh, to, from its remake, which I have not seen, um, I, and I, I know that Danny Glover and Christopher Lloyd are in it, uh, the remake that is, but I'm talking about the original 1951, Clarence Brown directed of Angels in the Outfield. And uh, it's a film that, in a way, sort of is a pastiche of many different types of films. It's sort of like, in a way, like The Bishop's Wife and Miracle on 34th Street, where it tests people's belief that there's something that one character believes in that the others don't see, and that you need to sort of like make that leap of faith. It has very much the uh, inherently positive imagery from people of the church, not just the Catholic church, but starting with sisters, obviously from the Catholic church. Um, it also has a, a trope that shows up, I think, in a number of films, um, not only, you know, um, The Trouble with Angels, but also the film uh, The Fortune Cookie, where the nuns are all into the games, right? That the nuns somehow are all baseball fans or sports fans and maybe even possibly naughtily betting on the games. But, 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 but it, it has elements of this, uh, but it also has something I think uh, somewhat unique. And that is, uh, it's again, the story of a last place team filmed mostly on location in Pittsburgh. The manager, Paul Douglas, who was an actor, who had quite a decent uh, uh, run in Hollywood. Um, he did play a couple. This was really his biggest film, I believe, as a lead. He was, I think, in the, in the film Letter to Three Wives. Um, and uh, he was in a number of film noirs as well, playing police captains and other things. But I think this film was really his first major star turn. Um, and, and he had been, he had done, he had done radio, he had done other things, he had done, actually had recorded song, he had recorded, he had been a singer in some ways, but this was a film that I think, and, and I'm going out on a limb here, I think he was sort of William Bendix with a little more gravitas, um, you know, again, it was sort of like a William Bendix that you could actually see a change to become almost like a uh, Gary Cooper, uh, Jimmy Stewart, everyman type of arc, as opposed to clearly just a character actor. Um, Bendix, although he had, a, as you know, uh, the, the Life of Riley, which I think he was also on television for a while. I don't think Bendix ever really, you know, was able to rise above his character actor status. I think Hollywood felt that Paul Douglas, we could probably, there's something about him that we could put uh, the whole film on his shoulders. And in this film, he is a former baseball player, like many, who has become a manager. And as the manager, um, he manages with aggression. He manages with vulgarity. He manages by pushing people around. Um, that is his frustration, clearly with himself, 
and maybe a love lost or friendships that he didn't necessarily work on. And the job that he has allows him to scowl and to push people around. Now, why he would stay as manager and the pirates all in last place, it seems like there was a number of people, whether it was DeRocher and others, that brought their ill temper to baseball. The, the film basically does a very interesting way in 1951 of indicating profanity. There was a certain sort of, of sound that would come out of his mouth that was sort of like, not like a, a car horn, but somehow a, 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 you can see that the tech people worked out a way that it wasn't just the typical blah, 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 but it sounded like a human voice, but garbled enough and elevated enough that everybody knew that he was dropping all sorts of F-bombs and everything else. Um, and that was the way he ran out on the field. That's the way he spoke. And it, it basically aligns profanity with vulgarity and aggression and what we call today toxic masculinity. Uh, and that is part of the reason why the team, despite having some talented players, these pirates are in last place. Now, um, the, the, the film also stars, uh, and this is really the framing device. And one of the signs of a weak film is that the framing device sort of like doesn't last for the whole movie, right? In other words, it starts with a narration from Janet Lee. Janet Lee is the co-star. I mentioned to you on the phone that, uh, that there was eventually a sort of like a romance that develops between this man who's clearly 20 years the senior and Janet Lee. Uh, they share a, a co-billing on this, uh, in this film. And Janet Lee, I, I think Hollywood wasn't sure what to do with her. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, was she just, you know, uh, you know, just a, a, a pretty face? Was she just, was she someone that had a lot of acting chops? Was she just like eye candy for people to look at? Uh, in this film, was she was she like Donna Reed, who, of course, by the way, won an Oscar for playing a, a call girl. But still, was she someone who was was she supposed to play femme fatales or was she just supposed to be just like a, your typical American housewife that we fought World War Two for? In this film, she is the household hints um, editor or the household hints columnist on the Pittsburgh Herald or whatever they call their readers and the other reporters sort of as a lark send her to the dugout for a interview. And it's there she's exposed to the, the raunchiness of who uh, Paul Douglas's character, which I think he's called McGuffey. Um, and uh, she realizes who this person is. Um, uh, she ends up writing a story in the paper about why she believes the team is bad. And that's because it's being managed in such an ugly, pernicious, non-human way. Um, and, and somehow, you know, of course, she, she tries to uh, make peace with him. She tries to sort of apologize to him, but he doesn't care. You know, he's, he doesn't care. He gets into fights with people. He says that's part of the life is, is if you're a manager, is that you don't care what people say about you. Um, so really, the, the film does a good job of putting um, the characters in place. There's a third character that's a dynam dynamic character. The real heavy of the movie is Keenan Wynn. Now, Yitzchak, we've talked about Keenan Wynn, uh, probably one of the really most prolific character actors in Hollywood and television history. 
um, in many ways, although he somehow lives in the shadow of his dad, Ed, um, he really played a, a, a plethora of different characters. Um, I was very happy that towards the end of his life, he plays an old Jewish guy in Saint Elsewhere. I don't know if you've seen that episode, but uh, he talks about his life. He talks about Jews in Germany. Um, it really is quite moving because, I, you know, Ed Wynn was always a Jew. You could always tell, you know, even, you know, in the famous Twilight Zone episode where, you know, where he pitches, you know, the pitch, you know, for the ages, you know that he's, he's, he's a Jewish guy. Keenan, his son, who really, you know, was a lot bigger than his dad, you know, usually played some sort of aggressive bully. Um, you might remember him from Flubber or, 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 the, or the absent-minded professor where, you know, he's, he's the one that wants to somehow capture Fred McMurray's. They were both in it. What? Right. Edwin was in it as well. You're right. Edwin, you know, again, they gave Edwin the fire, what was he, the fire chief or something, the guy, you know, but, but, but Keenan Wynn, um, you know, was, it, it plays a heavy in this film as well. He plays sort of a Red Barber character. He plays the, uh, the announcer for the pirates who the, the film isn't so clear about, but he also has a television spot as a commentator. He's the play-by-play announcer. And it seems like in the middle of the film, he seems to jump over to the New York Giants to become their announcer as well. And the, and, and the film indicates that he is, uh, he can match Paul Douglas, uh, if not in, in, in vulgarity, but in terms of his anger. And those two uh, get into it. Douglas uh, knocks his bridge work out and um, uh, Keenan Wynn, uh, playing this radio announcer is going to do his darndest to put Douglas down, to put the team down in the ultimate perfidy if he can. So those are, that's where the film starts. But then we get the angels into it. Somehow, as the film eventually reveals, there's a little orphan girl. The Moppet who plays the eight-year-old girl introducing Donna Corcaran, I assume, uh, who is able uh, somehow, because she prays, she's an orphan girl in the Sisters of St. Gabriel. And she is able, um, she prays so much for the pirates and for McGarry, uh, for McGuffey to somehow, to somehow uh, redeem himself. And what happens is because she is praying to uh, St. Gabriel, so it seems like, and this is really one of the great conceits of the film, is that, uh, uh, I said his name was McGuffey. His name was actually McGovern. <laughs> Guffey McGuffin. Yeah, McGuffin, yeah. Guffey McGovern. Thank you, man. So, um, so basically through her prayers, what happens is, is that old baseball players, the conceit is, don't really die and stay in their paradise life. They actually are still somehow connected to baseball and baseball players. So these players who have gone into the, into the great beyond have really are, into, are really in some sort of baseball heaven. And if you pray to them, somehow they will connect back to the baseball players of today. And um, which I think is really a, a type of conceit that Many people who love the game of baseball applaud because they sort of believe that, you know, that the, the players of today are on the shoulders of yesterday. We all talk about the records 
in baseball, which are, um, you know, and any kid knows, uh, you know, where these records were, uh, whether it's DiMaggio's hitting record or Gehrig's consecutive game streak. So in a way, the idea that the players of 1951 were really in a way standing under the, under the angels' wings of players from the past, that's sort of a, an idea that I think America appreciated. Now, the film does not have what the 90s remake does, which I think uh, a number, you can actually see the angels. In the film, you never see an angel. The most you see is a, a feather from somehow the angels' wings. And in fact, it's the, the only, in fact, uh, McGarry does not see the angels either. But the girls' prayers are able to generate that the angels do indeed come to him and speak to him. The head angel, I'm not sure if he ever has a name. Uh, you only hear his voice. And basically his message is, become a better person. Stop pushing people around. And, and it, it, the, 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 the message is that we will help your team. Somehow uh, the, the guys will somehow with that angelic woof, uh, whiff of air get to first base quicker. And somehow uh, with the angel behind them, they will make the catch they usually don't. Um, but it's not that the angels inhabit the bodies of those people. It's not, it's not that it's necessarily supernatural. I think what the film really, you know, it, it really is successful in doing is, is saying that you can create your own better life by being a better person in a way that somehow seems miraculous to the way things were before. Yes, there were angels, and he did hear angels talking to him, and it did come through the prayers of a little girl. But it, but really what the film is, is trying to tell you is that there's a character to building in an arc that occurs that, um, that McGuffey uh, will find a better version of himself. He will discover that he gets more with a carrot than he does with a stick. Um, it's true, the pirates somehow start climbing, uh, and, 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 but the angels tell him that if he loses his temper, if he starts to curse, that they're going to leave him, that they will not stay with him. That if he starts being cruel to people in the dugout, that, that's, that, that they aren't going to give him that type of influence anymore. And, and the film has a certain pathos to it as he's trying to change. But of course, they all know him and we all experiencing this. Whenever we go through, we want to change our lives. Our friends and the people close to us don't believe us because we've let them down so often. We've given in to our, <laughs> the worst parts of our nature. And we, when we want to turn over a new leaf, we discover that the people around us aren't ready to embrace and take us in. And that, of course, happens um, with, uh, you know, with him and with, with Paul Douglas as well, with McGovern. He, uh, I must have said McGuffey another time, but that's what happens to him as well. Um, and there's a, a very moving scene where um, he's, he would like people to join him. Finally, he doesn't want to just eat alone on the train going off to Kansas City or wherever it is they're going. Um, and it, it becomes clear that there's an old friend of his that they somehow were together for a couple of seasons in baseball. Um, and that is a character with an incredibly Jewish sounding name, uh, Saul Hellman. It's played by Bruce Bennett, who, <laughs> um, who was actually he was he was supposed to be the original Tarzan. Um, his real name was uh, um, his name was Herman Bricks, 
and he was a shot putter in the 1928 Olympics. But uh, uh, he plays Saul Hellman. You can't get, again, that's quite a Jewish sounding name. And he is an old pitcher that can only be a relief pitcher or pitch an inning or two. And um, Saul uh, also refuses the kindness of the new, uh, the new McGovern. Um, what, what happens, however, is, is that um, uh, as they discover when the nuns bring a Bridget, the eight-year-old Bridget to the, to the stadium, and she starts talking about seeing the angels, and then it becomes a story uh, in the Pittsburgh paper, and it, it gets combined eventually with the fact that at, at, some, at some stadium, at some groundskeeper, uh, is able to hear, is, is able to overhear um, McGovern talking to the angels uh, about the game and what had occurred. And then, of course, it gets turned into this idea that, that McGovern uh, tries to uh, be connected to the little orphan and he has Rahmanus on her, as we say, he has compassion on her, and he wants to, it seems like he realizes how difficult her life has been, how difficult the life of all the orphans are. Um, they all, you know, they're all white, <laughs> but they're all in this place, and they're all wearing like little brownie costumes. There's a real touching scene where when McGovern comes in to find her, all the little girls think that a a prospective father is coming. So one of the girls takes her glasses off and says, they'll never adopt you with your glasses on. Um, you know, and she's a little blonde girl. It's, 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 quite, uh, it's quite moving in a way. Uh, and when he realizes that, that these children, despite the best efforts of the nun, really don't have a real family, he starts taking a tremendous uh, feeling towards her. And somehow the script allows Janet Lee to also play sort of like a mother hen in this regard. And suffice to say that this little unit sort of becomes a family without being a real family. Um, and the pirates are on their way to, uh, to becoming a, a real team. Uh, and he's becoming a person who can actually be loved again and be loved even by someone you know, young and attractive uh, because despite his gruff exterior, he's showing that this is really, a, it isn't just to win the game. It isn't just, it, it really has started to change him. Um, and that's why the film isn't just played as like a Phil Silvers type of, I need this angle and I just got to win. Uh, you really see the fact that maybe becoming a better person has its rewards. Um, and as I said, the film eventually becomes sort of like a version of Miracle on 34th Street, where... Um, uh, after the, the report of the groundskeeper hearing him talk uh, gets into Keenan Wynn's ear, Keenan Wynn decides to go on national radio and to pronounce that McGovern is obviously mentally unbalanced and therefore cannot re doesn't have the right uh, to continue as a, uh, a manager of a team. And now as the team is on its way to capture the pennant, that's, you know, the great, the, that, that's the, the, penultimate drama of the film. And that scene, Louis Stone, who, as you know, was Andy Hardy's dad, I believe, right? Louis Stone. Uh, he's the, commercial, the commissioner. Um, Arnold P. Hapgood is his name. And uh, they, they convene a special case, a special, like almost like a courtroom to decide whether belief in angels uh, qualifies 
as the type of thing that you would have to um, uh, put a person in, I guess, in the loony bin for, uh, for doing that. Um, the film uh, has a scene with, that, that, that really speaks to me uh, quite a bit. Um, after one of, after the, uh, the psychologist, Dr. Blaine, played by Richard Hale, and if you know who Richard Hale is, Richard Hale, I think, played a bad guy in almost every, uh, every, uh, every movie he was ever in. Um, and, and you can see him, of course, uh, he's in To Kill a Mockingbird. I think he plays, um, he plays one of the fellows that, uh, that, Je- that, that, that you know, wants to lynch, <laughs> lynch everybody. Anyway, the point is, is that um, after the psychiatrist gives his uh, description of what the primitive ridiculousness of believing in, in angels and how it comes from uh, the original uh, serving of idols of the sun and the moon and humanizing them in a way that makes sense. Uh, McGovern brings his three witnesses that he's never seen, three members of the Pittsburgh clergy. And there's a Unitarian priest, a rabbi, and of course, uh, a Barry Fitzgerald type of uh, of, of priest, a Catholic, a Unitarian, a Protestant, and a Jew. Um, again, this was 1951, and you know he he he's he, the Jew is Rabbi Alan Hahn from Temple Israel, played by uh, Lawrence Dobkin, who was in a number of. Uh, usually, he played a Jew quite often, but I was very taken by the fact that these three guys come in to to refute the psychologist, to refute the modern understanding that we've moved beyond religion, that we've moved beyond belief. And they both attest to the fact that the Bible, which is still the core book that unifies the Judaic Christian tradition, has not only a, a, a mentioning of angels, a belief in angels, and the importance of angels, and how angels could speak to us, and how angels are part of our life. Uh, it's a great little scene where the Unitarian speaks about the B'nai Elohim. He talks about using the Hebrew, in the ancient Hebrew, the B'nai Elohim or the Shluchim. And how do you say it, Rabbi? And he turns sure. to Bobkin playing Alan Hahn and Alan says, Malachim, yes, Malachim, right? And, uh, and, and, and of course, they take digs at the psychologist. And of course, they all have tickets to the game because they are also going to the game that's probably, that will decide uh, the, the pennant for whether the pirates win the pennant over over the uh, over the giants or not, um, it's a it, it sort of has a lot to me spoke to the period of 1951 where there was a sense that that there was a freedom of religion and a sense of of America being ultimately getting its values and strength from its religious mentality and how the Jews and the Catholics and the Protestants really were forming. Uh, a, a, a bond that would ensure that this would be a country that would grow in a very positive way uh, on the heels of World War II. And I think that that, that message really you know, comes across very strongly. Um, unfortunately, uh, bef- at, the, at the trial, uh, Keenan Wynn turns on the worst baddie he could be because they, they bring Bridget to testify and he accuses her of lying just because she wants to get a daddy and that really she didn't see anything. And, you know, he, he harasses her on the witness stand, which causes Paul Douglas to react rashly 
and to defend her from this attack, from this wolf-like character, Keenan Wynn, he punches him again. And once that occurs, on the cab ride to the stadium, the angel says, that's it, you're on your own. You are not supposed to be violent again. You are supposed to control your temper. We are not going to help you. So the game, the game that's going to decide the pennant, the angels aren't going to be there. So instead of having like this, you know, the, the last scene and Clarence Brown, the director, he really knew how to milk um, sports scenes. On this podcast, we've talked about Clarence Brown's masterful direction of National Velvet. And if you might remember at the end of National Velvet, that was a quite, despite everything that was going on up until that point, he does a great job in the race. And you really, you, you feel your heart racing as Elizabeth Taylor is making her way and will she make it over that last jump? Brown seemed to have a quality of being able to know how to film a sports scene in a way that could bring his audience there. Now, this was not technical or like, like uh, National Velvet, but that last game against the Giants with, you know, obviously he's been punched in the mouth and you can see, um, uh, you know, Keenan Wynn is still, as Harry is Bales, he's still announcing the game, despite the fact that he's been punched in the mouth again by, by, uh, by Paul Douglas. But will the Pirates win or not? Remember I told you about the, about the old pitcher Somehow the normal pitcher can't pitch. There's nobody there. Somehow they, there's something that happened to him. And who's the only person that can pitch is the old friend who they say doesn't have anything left. And when they put him out there as the pitcher, the whole stand erupt, all, everyone in the stand erupts in booze saying, there's no way Hellman can pitch. Get Hellman out of there. He's too old. He can't do it. And McGovern asks him, can you do it? What do you think? He said, I'd like to try. And because, I don't want to spoil too much, because McGovern has a sense that this might be his last game because the Angels have told him who's on their list, who they're going to take pretty soon, he wants to give Hellman his chance because this might be the last game he ever plays. So therefore, he believes in him. His friendship, his belief in in, in, in investing someone else with courage and to become and to have that great moment, he keeps him in the game. And even though it turns out that he's able incredibly to pitch, he gets tired. And as he's tiring, the Giants start putting people on base. And as the top of the ninth, with the Giants having a, a the Giants have bases loaded, and will he take Hellman out? Hellman is tired. His, he's perspiring. Is he going to let him continue? Will he be able to get that third out? Or will, he, or will you do what every single manager would do, would try to win the game no matter what, despite what it does taking away that person's moment where he keeps him in. And in regular baseball fashion, without any special effects, the Pirates, he's able to get the guy out. And of course, this was, you know, the, the, the moment that you really see that, uh, that how... Um, Douglas, as McGovern, was able in a way to, to, to show the greatness of his humanity and without doing it in a way of chest thumping, of pointing to himself, letting someone else be the hero, showing your belief in that person. And 
the pennant was won by the pirates there. Now, the film makes sure to tell you that it's a fable, that it could have been anywhere. Um, but the film, as I think I mentioned to both you and, and Joe, the Yitzchak, was Eisenhower's favorite film. Now, maybe Eisenhower was not uh, a film aficionado, but as someone who was sort of the, the mind of, you know, if anybody represented the 1950s, it was Ike, right? Here was Ike, wasn't a professional politician, person who would come from winning the war, who brought the perspective, you know, of, of a general of putting all things together. Um, that's the reason why, you know, he won the presidency based on the fact that he was the, the commander of, of, of all the allied forces. And he, this film to him, despite the fact that it had pieces of this and pieces of that, to him stood for why America should go to the movies and what they can get from it. Um, I, and therefore, I think it sort of deserves to be in a little bit of a time capsule. But I wanted to add here something which I know both of you are interested in, is the fact that um, nine years later, eight years later, nine years later, uh, Rod Serling uh, wrote a screenplay, a uh, teleplay, that was basically a, I, I consider almost like a remake of this, of, of, of Angels in the Outfield. Now, he called it The Mighty Casey, was in the very first season of The Twilight Zone, it was one of the last, next to last episode. And it's played somewhat for last, but it was filmed with Paul Douglas. And Paul, and the character was called McGarry. And uh, the, the team uh, was also a last place team that doesn't exist anymore. Uh, it wasn't the Pittsburgh Pirates. He came up with the Hoboken Zephyrs. Um, both of these films, both, both the 1960 Twilight Zone episode and this uh, were filmed, much of it was filmed, uh, the baseball scenes themselves, not where they were using stock footage, was filmed in what was called Wrigley Field in Los Angeles. It seems like the Cubs had, before everybody moved to Los Angeles, there was a minor league team for the Cubs in California, and there was a very decent stadium that Hollywood would many times use when they wanted to film something doing with baseball. Um, Douglas actually uh, was, the character was called McGarry, um, and uh, Douglas actually went through and they filmed the whole episode, uh, but Douglas died uh, just a couple of days after completion of filming. He had, a, he had a massive coronary and he died. Uh, quite a young man. Uh, really, you know, I think he was somewhat, I think he, I think he was about 50 uh, when he died. Um, the thing is, is that uh, Serling refused to use that episode. He said, we all thought that he was drunk or he was ill, that he was, you know, that something was wrong with him. He wasn't getting his lines down. Really, he was in the throes of a heart attack and dying. And you can see it. I'm not going to have a, a, a program that's a testament to the man's death. Uh, it's one thing to say it would be a great performance, but this was not. So Serling uh, needed to reshoot every scene that had used Douglas. And he got Jack Warden, a much younger fellow, to sort of play the role and to reshoot every single scene. Uh, CBS did not want to put up the money for it. They said, go with the old show. You already have it in the can. Serling took out 27 grand of his own money in order to, to pay um, Warden. And he also had a second director, I think it was Lewis Parrish, who came in to direct all those scenes. 
So the program itself, I think, had it been what Sterling thought it was going to be, I think would have with 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 Douglas in it, I think everybody would have understood the resonance. And let me just tell you, you know what, of course, the plot is, which is a last place team, not helped necessarily by belief or angels or, you know, becoming better human beings, but actually by bringing in an android or a robot, as they always said in those days, uh, that looked exactly like a person. And this, this, this robot um, was uh, created by, you know, all his blueprints are on one page, which is, which is pretty weird. Um, but, uh, his, he was created by, um, uh, by a wonderful, uh, Dr. Stillman played in Yitzchok by Avraham Yitzchok Sofer, uh, who was a, uh, a, a Jewish character actor. Um, he lived to be, uh, a, a grand old age, he lived to be 91 years old. Um, he was born in Rangoon, uh, to, you know, Jewish uh, merchants there. Uh, he had a, a wonderful English accent. Uh, he plays the the scientist, uh, Dr. Stillman, who has created this android, this robot. Uh, the robot was actually played by Robert Sorrells, um, who um, I think did a number of things there. He was a big, you know, lanky sort of fellow, uh, sort of very quite goofy looking, actually. Um, I think he had a pretty ignoble ending. I think he sort of, uh, I think he sort of went nuts at the end of his life and started shooting people. I think there was something that happened with him, you know. But um, uh, it turns out that as a uh, as an android, he of course, like your Dick Van Dyke character, is uh, someone who could pitch and throw uh, fastballs like they are uh, they are missiles, and and obviously uh, can be that one player that can make the difference. Which is what happens. The Zephyrs are able to, the Zephyrs are able to rise, uh, just like the original Pittsburgh Pirates and the Angels in the outfield. But instead of belief uplifting them, the the manager remains the McGarry. He doesn't change at all. In fact, in Serling's version of Angels in the outfield, the Angels, the out, the the players are helped by technology, where a robot comes. And a robot, of course, can, can do anything. A robot, an android, and that's what's going to save us. That's what's going to bring us together. That's, that's this world, you know, that, that Serling, of course, was afraid of. And part of the, the drama of this, of this program, although it's meant to be pretty much a comedic piece of Twilight Zone, is that when some sort of dysfunction happens and, and they take this robot to the hospital, they realize that he is not a human being. And as the commissioner, again, the commissioner of baseball shows up, the commissioner of baseball shows up and tells them, again, very much like the original, that he's, it says, has to be nine men. He's not a man. He's not a man because he doesn't have a heart. Hmm, Stillman. How about if I put him a heart? How about if we take this artificial intelligence and we actually give it what we call human, actually a heart, but really, in this sense, a heart meaning, uh, meaning a soul or some sort of sense of feeling, um, maybe that would be good enough. So Stillman is able to work his magic. Again, that's, that's the Twilight Zone. So nothing really needs to, right? Every, you don't need any real explanation of how you could put a heart into this android. And somehow, it's not just something that pumps whatever it is that pumps into him. I don't know, oil or <laughs> whatever it is, uh, whatever gets, whatever gets started, gets pumped into his system. 
ends up being uh, something that actually turns him into someone compassionate and feeling. So even though he has all the qualities of this incredible baseball player, he refuses to strike people out. When the game, when he comes to, to, to actually pitch, he doesn't want to embarrass anyone. Because if a person really cares about other human beings, he wants them to shine. He wants them to be elevated. So therefore, he's useless. And after the game, he comes in and says, yeah, I just want to, I'm just going to become a, a social worker, I think. <laughs> so that is how that ends. Uh, uh, Stillman leaves his, his uh, the blueprints of how to make him. And of course, the, um, the, the impression is somehow, with Serling's narration, is that a team somehow left Hoboken and somehow went you know, somehow uh, went to the West Coast and uh, started becoming a team that uh, was was a great team and, and they had a great pitching staff, but none of them ever smiled because, you know, which is, of course, interesting because, of course, that's sort of what happened uh, to the early 1960s Dodgers, who actually did have with Don Drysdale and Sandy Koufax, and they had some of the greatest pitchers of all time and, and, did, and were one of the greatest teams. Uh, the point being, though, I think, is that uh, Serling, his love of film, his love of that film specifically, uh, and, and and I think it's it's telling that, you know that uh, that that Serling, I, I really see this as almost two different versions of where our salvation comes from. Um, does it come from you know using baseball as the ultimate metaphor of of success in life? Um, you know, Tom, I talked to you about the Ken Burns. Yep. Uh, the Ken Burns documentary. Uh, I don't of, of how wonderful baseball is and how it really stems from the American. It's the ultimate American game, um, you know, stemming from you know post the Civil War. Um, and it was a way to sort of develop a method, I guess, of coping uh, a game that doesn't have a time limit. You know, a game that's not built on winning one. Unlike football, that you have to have a week to prepare for, it, it, much, it mimics life much more. You know, maybe you're off a day, but you you got to get used to playing three or four or five days in a week, um, and it's all about the long run, as opposed to a football game where you know if, if you can somehow win uh, you know three or four or five games in a row, if you get into the playoffs. Um, Baseball, originally before the World Series, which was sort of like a, a knockoff idea that they had to make more money, mo- many real hard um, core baseball aficionados feel the World Series is not, shouldn't even be a, a symbol of a great team. It's about the pennant. It's about putting together in the 150 or 164 games, however many games they play, the best record. And that makes, you know, that makes baseball you know, very different. It's, it's, you know, you, you, the pennant is awarded to you because of the struggle of, of, of getting through life and having more successes than failures. The whole season. Yeah. Baseball baseball certainly is the long game. And that's, that's, and, and also, you know, it can, baseball is the only sport that there is not a, a turnover. The, the, the defense can't score. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm like football, basketball, hockey, you know, you can't steal, you can't, 
you know, in other, it, words, in other words, your roles are are set in a concrete way. It's a concrete other, way. It's a concrete sport. Um, and and like you said, it could take. I've sat up and watched a baseball game go into the sixteenth, seventeenth inning, uh, where uh, they've run out of pitchers. <laughs> right. Uh, and the second baseman has to come in and pitch because. <laughs> But I think what you're saying about, about, you know, in football, we're used to an offense and a defense. Mm -hmm. In baseball, you really have to be the great players were great in both. What made Mays... You can't prematurely change hands. Yeah. And and you think about Mays, to me, the greatest player I ever saw. Uh, and, and, and And again, even though Aaron eclipsed him in terms of the amount of home runs... Nobody could field like Mays and still hit like Mays. Mays could, Willie Mays could, could, could make any catch in center field. But at the same time, he could throw any person out. But at the same time, he was incredible at the plate in terms Correct. of his ability to hit. So you really have, uh, you, what you need in baseball is both talents. You have to be able to defend and you have to be able to, to move. Um, you know, there's a there's a quality of speed that every player needs. Every player needs to have a certain amount of speed. Um, so, so in many ways, it really is um, a, a, a unique experience. I, I I I wonder. You know, obviously, it is not in any way, shape, or form. I am. You know, you you and you you and Joe together about my age. But you know, when I was growing up, baseball was still king. But baseball really lost that title, I think, in the early 70s. I think with um, the with the success of the Super Bowl, uh, with, you know, there were the, 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 the incredible, almost maniacal fandom of teams like the Dallas Cowboys and, and the Pittsburgh Steelers and others, a, a lot of baseball has, has faded. Um, I don't know how that's affected, you know, film. Um, you know, I I don't know. You know, you, you talked about the film that you don't like. Um, um, somebody was telling me how much they hated Field of Dreams, um, but um, you know, I, I think it is in a way been relegated. I know, Joe. What do you think? Uh, baseball is really it's old hat in a way, right? Yeah, yeah. That's pretty much. Uh, I think I think part of it is it's not a, a fast game. I mean, that's. To me, that's the appeal that I see of it is that you know, it's, you know, the the slow nature of it. It's almost like fishing, you know. <laughs> and I think is you know, there's a um, there's a great. This might be one of our something to highlight in, in weeks to come. I, I think one of the best films Warren Beatty ever made uh, was Heaven Can Wait, uh, where he plays uh, a football player um, who dies before his time and makes a deal with uh, the angels <laughs> to be able to come back. You might remember that. And he comes back in the body of some rich uh, dilettante who he changes that guy's life. And as I said, Jack Warden is in it as well. Um, so you have some sort of angelic beings in there. But I think the original film that heaven can wait, here comes Mr. Jordan with Robert Montgomery and Claude Rains. Um, and this has got uh, Warren Beatty and James Mason uh, in those roles. And Robert Montgomery plays a, a Elizabeth's father, plays a prize fighter in this 
whose, t- whose life is taken away before it should have been, that he really would have survived this plane crash, but somehow he dies and he has to come back and try to somehow um, you know, achieve what he wants in life, which is to, which is to actually you know, finally win, um, you know, to win the, the heavyweight championship or something like that. It's interesting that when Beatty wanted to remake the film, by that time, baseball, boxing, horse racing, they'd all receded into the past. And when the film was, was, was remade, uh, the, they, they realized we got to go with football. Football is really the sport that when people see it, people will somehow get the quarterback and football would somehow be that, that role of, that had taken um, the place. And again, I, I, am a, I love football, but again, you know, it is a game that's violent. It's a game that um, has, uh, unfortunately, as we say in Hebrew, a lot of korbanot, a lot of people who have um, suffering with, you know, with, with quite a number of injuries. <laughs> They're sort of like, even before they get taken to the, to the heavenly baseball diamond, they're already in a way in a different world um, with a lot of brain injury and concussions and other things like that. So, you know, in, in a way, as much as the game sort of speaks to uh, Serling's sense of a, of, a, of a future world where everything is, you know, technologically marvelous, the way football has become, there's something about the, you know, about the Sylvan um, homespun aspect of baseball that I think we can only probably just appreciate by whether it's Bilko or, um, or, or any of these uh, suggestions tonight. It's sort of a time capsule to sort of remember how, how large baseball loomed. And you know, it's not going away, but does anybody really care who won the All-Star game tonight? <laughs> yeah, not particularly. I don't think so. Anyway, that's it, my friends. All Watch right. it. Watch it. Tom Shabilla, thanks a lot for spending Thank you for having days. me as always. All right. I appreciate Take it. Take care, everybody. Be well. Take care. Good night. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. Thank you.